This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most heinous, the most high-profile homicides occurring in Maryland, they are examined, they are discussed, and they are profiled. For this season, season six, the focus is on robbery-related murders, or basically like murders where the victim was killed simply because the killer or killers, they wanted something that the victim had. And like I said in the last episode, trust and believe, the state of Maryland has a lot of these types of homicides, and I only selected 10. 10 of the most horrific robbery-related cases, and this is just only part one. Part two will come out later, eventually, but for right now, season six, I only focused on 10 of the most horrific robbery-related homicides occurring in Maryland. So with that being said, let's get right on into it and focus on this episode. On this episode, the murderer, Dante Carter, will be profiled. And as in each episode and in every season, there will be an unsolved homicide that needs special attention that will also be profiled. And for this episode, the unsolved murder of 50-year-old Becky Elizabeth Crisp will be examined. Now, you know... This next killer that I'm going to talk about, some some killers in Maryland, they have such a huge influence on how things are done, uh, basically because of the murders that they have committed. The crimes or the homicides were so outlandish, so callous, so horrific that they demand change in Maryland. Some killers, I mean, a change needed to occur because the killer either altered the normal way things are done to make their crimes easier to commit or a change needed to occur because flat out like Merlin's laws were originally too lenient. The next time you look at your driver's license in Merlin and want to know why there is now a digitized version of your photo on there along with a digital version of your signature you'll know it's because of this murderer right here. Now, when Dante Carter was young, first, all right, first young thing, young Dante Mandel Carter was like a lot of kids born into Baltimore City, was born into a life of turmoil from the beginning. Dante's mother, who gave birth to him when she was only 15 years old herself, she named him after a man that nobody believed was his biological father anyway. And the dude made no effort to have any type of relationship with the kid that he didn't think was his. Being a young mother, Dante's mother had dealt with her own childhood issues after she had witnessed her own father stabbing and killing her mother when she was just seven years old. 
like a lot of young mothers back then, Dante's mother probably could not deal mentally with that traumatic event. And she ended up being raised by a, another family who became like parents to her. And after she got pregnant with Dante, she eventually dissolved into a lifestyle of drugs and alcohol, which eventually developed into a full-blown addiction. Dante's mother struggled with her addictions, and according to articles for the Baltimore Sun, when Dante was three years old, his mother gave him to the same family that had raised her. And these people were working class people that held suitable jobs. The grandfather, who had retired after working 48 years straight, like 48 years straight at Bethlehem Steel, which back in the day, that was like the job they had. But now he worked as a like a security guard. And his grandmother, who was a nurse, but she was like one of those type of grandmothers who quit that nursing career to become a crossing guard so she could raise her grandkids who needed her more. She was that type of grandmother. So Dante's mother later told reporters for the bottom of son that she thought that she was helping Dante when she gave him up, saying she told them that, in her words, I didn't want him running the streets like I did. I wanted him to have a stable home. As I said, the woman and her husband were like grandparents to young Dante, and as a child, not only was he exceptionally bright, you know, he was one of those smart kids, and he had a natural talent for music, and he thrived in his grandparents' care and supervision. Dante excelled so much that when he was in the third grade, Dante was placed in a gifted program for students at his school where he got above average grades and had perfect attendance. When his grandparents moved to the Woodmore neighborhood in Western Baltimore County, they took Dante with him, with them, and he continued to thrive, you know, continued to do right, you know, get excellent grades in the county school, stayed out of trouble, showed no behavior or academic problems. Dante even went to church every week at New St. Mark's where he sang in the church choir and learned how to play the piano in the basement of the church without having to take a single lesson. The only issues that he had in his life was when his mother would pop up in and out of his life. You know, people or parents, I should say, they don't realize how detrimental that bouncing back and forth, wishy-washy in and out of a kid's life, the trauma that can, you know, that kids go through when a parent does that. This whole lifestyle of, I can parent you when I feel like it. What they don't realize what that does to a child. The inconsistencies can be traumatic. Dante's mother swore that she loved her son, and I'm sure she did, but she swore that she would get herself clean and that she would come for him and that they would get a house together and they would be a family and live happily ever after. A young Dante held on to these beliefs and that fantasy because he loved his mother and he believed his mother until one day he just realized, you know what, it's not going to happen. He realized that his mother was just dropping in and out of his life, making empty promises, you know, of how she was going to take him home where they could finally be a real family. But that never happened. And Dante started acting out of school and having behavior issues. His grandparents, they did what they could. And they sent, they even sent him to therapists and psychologists. They did all of that for help. 
And some of the therapy, it did help at a time. Some of the therapy did help at a time, um, especially when Dante would open up and communicate about his feelings as a kid. But as Dante grew up and grew older, that abandonment from his mother continued. And like nothing can compare, nothing can be substituted for the natural affection, that feeling of being loved and wanted that a boy needs from his mother, the first person that he falls in love with, basically, you know, his biological mother. He just never seemed to receive it. And as a young kid, the rebellion led him to running the streets and being on his own a lot. Social workers finally got notice of what was going on. And when they got involved, they actually noted in their reports that Dante needed to actually physically see his mother. And they noted that Dante is hurt when his mother breaks promises to him and doesn't come as planned. Eventually, all the acted out escalated into stealing and setting small fires in the basement of his home, like to get any type of attention, even if it's negative tension that he desperately craved. When Dante's mother got married, she did finally come and get Dante from his grandparents and Dante did manage to stay in her care for about three short months before social workers intervened again and determined that Dante was actually being neglected by his mother. Then they put him back into the care of his grandparents again, but by this time the back and forth damage was done and Dante started running away from the structured home of his grandparents in Baltimore County and back to the lack of supervision and discipline at his mother's home in East Baltimore. And in August of 1985, according to articles in the Baltimore Sun, 12-year-old Dante got his first juvenile charge for stealing, and he was sentenced to six months in a juvenile group home, 12 years old. Dante started getting into the fights in these homes. He kept running away, breaking the rules, and basically started a lifestyle of delinquency and rebellion against authority. Eventually, Dante was put back in his mother's care, and according to articles for Baltimore Sun, the eighth grader, he did okay staying with his mother at times at first, and he did have dreams of going to City College or the Baltimore School for Arts, but before he could pursue any of these schools, Dante was arrested with a BB gun outside of a bar. The lure of the streets combined with peer pressure from Dante's friends, who also had no real supervision, was just too much for him. And Dante drifted from staying with his mother sometimes to getting arrested for charges like theft, stolen cars, and he got locked up and arrested at least 12 times before his 15th birthday, all as a juvenile. Once a jewelry store on Monument Street reported that somebody had stolen like a gold diamond wedding band and shortly after Dante was caught, he had it on his finger. Stuff like that, he just kept getting locked up. Once Dante got caught stealing a pair of jeans out of Old Town Mall in East Baltimore, got locked up for that too. Once Dante got caught stealing acne medication out of a writing, got locked up for that too. And just in and out of juvenile for stealing this, stealing that, and Almost all of the, almost at all of the juvenile facilities that he spent time in, Dante managed to run away or flat out escape from. Nothing and nobody could keep him down. And as a teenager, Dante went from bad to worse, 
and start and just stayed running the streets. He didn't go to school. He didn't. He just basically didn't pursue on his dreams no more. And nobody really made him do it. Nobody made sure he was fed. Nobody made sure he had clothes. None of that. Dante's mother later told reporters uh, for WBAL that she should have taken more interest, more interest in her son. Saying, "I got to the point where I had recently just stopped taking time with him, like I used to." That I shouldn't have done, she said. In February of 1989, Dante was caught riding around in a stolen Pontiac. And this time, 15-year-old Dante, the 15-year-old was charged as an adult for the first time. Prosecutors had enough of this back and forth. And it was obvious that the juvenile justice system in Baltimore was, and still is, the biggest joke in Maryland. So this was Dante's first time being charged as an adult. And even then, the judge saw all of Dante's past potential, all of his school awards, and instead of sentencing the team to prison this time, Dante was sentenced to the Glen Mill School in Pennsylvania, which was like a private school for teenage boys who were also juvenile delinquents. Four months after coming to the school, Dante came to a scheduled court hearing to, in Baltimore County, where teachers at Glen Mills were all prepared, were on his way basically, they were all prepared to testify in court on how good Dante had been doing since he came to the school. They were literally like on their way to the courthouse from Pennsylvania. And they was gonna tell him how much he had been progressing, but they never got the chance to do that because on the ride to the courthouse, Dante escaped out the van, through the back door and started running. Three weeks after running away from the Glen Mill School, Dante stole a van and went joyriding with five of his friends. On June 30th, 1989, Dante was out riding around in his stolen van. And while he's out riding around in his stolen van with a few of his friends in the van, he got a sawed-off shotgun, a 357 Magnum handgun, a double-edged hunting knife, and weed, which was highly illegal at the time and a stolen credit card with five other dudes in the van and Dante behind the wheel. He's out riding around and he drives up to the Fort McHenry Tunnel where he gets stopped because he didn't have one dollar on him to pay for the toll. See, when he realized he didn't have the money, he asked the toll operator if he could sign like, he asked the lady if he could sign like one of those cards that, you know, if you can pay the toll by mail. But in order to do that, the tow operator was like, sure, but I need to see a driver's license first. When Dante couldn't produce a driver's license, the tow operator, she called a state tow office, um, officer over. And when the tow officer asked for Dante's driver's license, Dante was like, so when Dante could not produce a driver's license, the tow operator, she called the tow officer over and the toll officer asked for his license and Dante was like, oh, I left it home. When the officer asked for his license, his, his, um, his name and his date of birth so he could check that out, Dante gave him the name of his half-brother. But since he didn't know his half-brother's correct date of birth, he just made something up. When the officer checked that out and found out that the information that Dante gave him didn't match up with no license in that name, 
Dante tried to put the blame then on one of the other passengers that was in the van. He was like, oh, I wasn't a driver anyway. Why are you asking me all these questions? I mean, let me go get the driver. The officer had enough of these shenanigans and arrested everybody in the van, especially when the guns, weed, and the stolen credit card was found. The whole time, the officer noted in his report that Dante insisted that he really was his half-brother. He kept saying with confidence, I'm a juvenile and I know my rights. Before you even get your paperwork done, I'll be out on the streets again. After Dante got arrested, he still lied, even to his own public defender, that he really wasn't who he was. And he was really his half-brother, who had no criminal history and who had never been arrested for anything. Dante even went as far as saying that he ain't even known none of these people who was in the van and he ain't know nothing about none of this, like none of this that's, that was going on. Dante's public defender didn't do his homework. He bought all of this. His public defender, now, now you see why they call him public defenders. He ain't feel like checking in none of this. He bought all of this nonsense that Dante was saying and at Dante's bail review, he stood up in front of a judge and said that Dante was a dude with no criminal record and an excellent student who was studying piano at the Peabody Conservatory and eligible to play football on the school's football team. The prosecutor couldn't wait to eat this one up and he told Dante's public defender that he should do his homework more thoroughly, ran Dante's fingerprints, find out who he really is because he and the judge knew exactly who Dante was because he had heard the name Dante Carter so many times before, and the judge just happened to be the same judge that has sentenced Dante to the school in Pennsylvania instead of sentencing him uh, to prison time. So after Dante basically made a mockery of the court system, Dante's public defender started apologizing and trying to save face. But then again, people had had enough of Dante's bullshit and his lies and this time, the judge sentenced Dante to three years at a youth, youthful offender program at a training center in Hagerstown. Still not a fully adult prison, but still a chance for reform, a chance for redemption. While serving his time in Hagerstown, Dante received training as a sanitation steward, but he lost that job because he kept getting into fights with the other inmates. He kept getting caught with contraband and he got caught stealing stuff that was not his. Because of Dante's constant write-ups, tickets, and warnings, Dante was sent to lockup at least six times and spent over half of his time there, isolated from the other inmates. When Dante wasn't on lockup and in general population, Dante did spend his time learning about the history of the Black Muslim religion and he became an assistant minister in this newfound faith that he now discovered. And from his beliefs and teachings, now all of a sudden, Dante developed a hatred of white people. All of a sudden to Dante, the white man was his enemy and the reason why he couldn't get ahead in life and somehow the white man was the reason why he kept getting locked up. Prison and jail was like criminal school for Dante and he picked up on all kinds of illegal ways to make money. Long gone were the foundations of church, good grades, and perfect attendance. And Dante's grandmother re released a statement to the Baltimore Sun that said, 
he could have been a very fine young man, a young man who could have made a contribution in this world. I can't believe that he had come to this. He was not raised as one of these children out in the street and just thrown away. He was taken care of, very good. He was raised in church by church womb people. There was just something that turned his head. I don't know what it was. Maybe he felt he was not wanted by his mother. I don't know. We just have to leave it in the hands of the Lord now and let the Lord do his will. Maybe because Dante felt unwanted by his mother, he wasn't good enough. Maybe he felt like a failure, who knows, but he didn't heed or listen to his grandparents' advice and the lure of the streets was just too much for him to resist. After Dante was re released from prison in Hagerstown, just 16 days after he got out, Dante picked up right where he left off, except this time Dante left prison with a deep-seated hatred for successful middle-to-upper-class white men, and now they became on Dante's radar. Now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden he was going to start robbing white men because why should they have all the money and all the success? On February 7, 1992, Dante attacked a doctor at a John Hopkins third floor parking garage, robbed the man of his wallet and credit cards, ordered the man to get in the trunk of his car while threatening to smash his head in with a hammer. The man obeyed and followed orders even as he listened to Dante calmly discussing with his passengers how he would have to kill him because he had seen Dante's face. In the man's words, he said, I could hear Carter say, he's seen me, I've got to kill him. We've got to burn his body with gasoline. Imagine hearing that. The man later testified in court that this is what he heard Dante saying. The doctor said Dante stole his wallet, but he struggled to drive the car, which was a stick shift. Dante couldn't really drive the car, so Dante ordered the man to drive them out. He ordered the man to drive him out of the parking garage. The doctor drove for a few blocks before Dante ordered him to pull over in an alley. And when he did, Dante ordered the man to get in the trunk of his car. Once the man did just that, Dante, uh, he tried driving the car again and managed to drive the car a few feet before pulling over in another alley. That's when Dante got out of the car, opened the trunk, tied the doctor's hands up and choked him with a rope until he passed out. When the doctor came to, he realized that the car had been abandoned again with Dante thinking that he had probably left the man, you know, dead in the trunk of his car. The doctor started kicking and yelling inside the trunk of his car and he managed to unhook the truck latch and alert a security guard to what had just happened. Just hours after kidnapping the doctor and stealing his credit cards, Dante marched into Cycle World Honda on Pulaski Highway, whipped out the doctor's stolen Citibank MasterCard, and without even looking at the price, bought a Yamaha, bought two Yamaha dirt bikes, costing about $3,900. The salesperson at the counter was a little suspicious of seeing a kid or teenager charging two dirt bikes, and he he had to get confirmation from a Citibank employee first because the bank was also suspicious about this sudden purchase on his credit card. But after Dante convinced them that he was who he was, Dante successfully left the dirt bike store with both bikes, loaded them onto the trunk of another stolen car, saying the whole time, what, 
People don't think a black man can get a credit card. A white man wouldn't have to go through all this. Mm. A few days later, on February the 14th, 1992, Dante was at it again, and he made his way to the Harbor Park Garage downtown, where he sat and waited for a well-dressed white man who looked professional enough to kidnap and rob. 37-year-old Vitalis V. Pilius was a computer engineer for Hewlett Packard Company and a father of four kids ranging from the ages of three to eight. Vitalis had just gotten off work and was walking to his car when he began Dante's when he became Dante's second victim. Abducted, Vitalis' hands Vital, Vitalis' hands were tied. A plastic bag was put over his head, and he was put in the trunk of his car. But instead of just robbing the man and leaving him in the trunk of his car like his last victim, Dante and his accomplice took Vitalius to the basement of a burned-out row home in East Baltimore. But before they went inside, Dante grabbed two five-foot metal pipes that had been laying in a nearby alley. After robbing Vitalis of his uh, wallet and credit cards while beating him, Dante decided that he was going to make sure that this victim would not be able to identify him later. Dante decided that he wouldn't just try to choke this one out. So in the roll home, Dante choked Vitalis with a belt and he and his accomplice beat him with the metal poles until they were sure and absolutely positive that he was dead. Then they kicked him down a flight of stairs and took off with Vitalis' credit card and driver's license. Dante took uh, his driver's license, burned a part of the license that shows your actual photo, but not the personal information like your date of birth, and marched into the Motor Vehicle Administration, told the clerk that she told he told the clerk there that all of his IDs and stuff had been burned in the fire and he needed a new driver's license. Because the clerk believed him and felt sorry for him, she issued Dante two new driver's licenses in Vitalis' name. Dante was home free now. On paper, he was now Vitalis. I'll keep getting his name mixed up. Vitalis, and since he was now assuming the identity of a white man, he had to play the part. So Dante went to Avis' car rental place, flashed his fake driver's license and stolen credit cards, but when the manager realized that Dante didn't look like a 37-year-old man, like the date of birth that was on the license, she called the police. Instead of getting spooked or nervous, Dante decided to cause a scene talking about, oh, I see what this is about. What, a, a black man can't rent a car? She ended up not renting Dante the car, but the cops that showed up gave Dante the license back and acted like they were irritated that they had been called for this nonsense in the first place. Dante left the car rental place, then headed over to Mondawmin Mall for a shopping spree where he used uh, the credit cards to buy more than $830 in tennis shoes, underwear, and sweatsuits. A police officer who had been working part-time there as a security guard at a sporting, sporting goods store in the mall was on duty there that day. He thought that it was suspicious that a young kid was paying for so much stuff especially using the credit card, and especially when everywhere he went, he created the scene of, oh, what, a black man can't handle credit? It's like he created so much of a scene using a damn stolen credit card, I might add, that the store managers just approved the sale because they wanted 
like no smoke. They ain't want to be sued. They ain't want no smoke. So after Dante got laced using the stolen cards to buy clothes, Dante went back downtown and used the cards again to rent two rooms at the this highest Marriott Inner Harbor Hotel and a rental and an Avis in another location. Dante also rented rooms at the Omni Inner Harbor Hotel on West Fayette Street, where he continued running up the credit card bill, renting pay-per-view movies and ordering room service. At the hotel that he shared with his accomplice, Dante lived it up with alcohol, weed, and girls. Dante charged more than $4,600 in purchases before Vitalis' wife finally called the credit card company in order that the card not be used anymore because her husband wasn't the person that was charging the cards and was just missing at the time. A few days later, Dante, uh, a few days later, Vitalis' body was found in the vacant row home in East Baltimore. Known as Vito, Vitalis was from Catonsville and was a devoted father and soccer coach. Later, more than 300 people would go to his funeral and pay their respects to him at St. Alfonso Roman Catholic Church on Saratoga Street. A few days after Dante went on his shopping spree, he went on another caper and went to the same parking garage where he had abducted uh, Vitalis from, looking for another white man to abduct, rob, and possibly kill. And he came across a 46-year-old jeweler. Dante stuck to his M.O., abducted the man, and forced him to get in the trunk of his car. With the man in the trunk of his car and Dante behind the wheel, Dante headed towards East Baltimore probably to do the same thing to him that he had done to his other victims, but this man wasn't having it. The man managed, this man managed to pop the trunk of his car and jump out to safety right in the middle of the street. A police officer just happened to be passing by. You see how God worked? And the officer saw all of this. With his sirens on, the officer chased the car and Dante pulled over on Enzer Street. Arrested on the spot, Dante's reign of terror was finally over. And after Dante was arrested, the police found his accomplices still at the Omni Hotel. They did run off when the cops came. They arrested one person at the hotel, and they arrested two of the other dudes at their home the next day. Once Dante's accomplices were arrested, they all started snitching on him and insisted that Dante was really the ringleader and the mastermind in all of this. They were like... Um, we just went along with his plans that Dante had thought of while he had been locked up. You know, they didn't even really have to snitch that much because after Dante got arrested, he himself started confessing to everything anyway. On January the 8th, 1993, Dante pled guilty to abducting the jeweler who had escaped from the trunk of his car. But he pled not guilty to murdering Vitalis and he decided to take that case to trial. And on November 17, 1992, Dante was convicted of first-degree murder. While awaiting trial and more court proceedings, Dante racked up tickets at the jail for threatening the CEOs, fighting other inmates, and because of all the disruptions, the CEOs put him in the Supermax. At the time, Supermax was the most highest security level or level of security that the Department of Corrections had in the state. That is, until an inmate who was double-jointed managed to get out escaping Supermax. And they shipped everybody out to Cowtown, or also known as North Branch. But that's another story. That's 
another story for another time. But since we talk about escapes, as if Dante's crimes and murder was not notable enough, he had to make sure he went out with a bang and really make a name for himself. So while going through these court proceedings on January the 18th, 1993, around 2.15 p.m. at the Clarence M. Mitchell J. Jr. Courthouse, like during the middle of the trial, Dante asked to go to the bathroom. Now, normally inmates are shackled with cuffs and leg irons when they are transported to and from or throughout the courthouse. COs usually transport inmates to the lockup facility bathroom that's on the fourth floor of the courthouse or in the basement of the courthouse. But on this particular day, the judge let Dante use his own personal bathroom in his chambers. And apparently he had been allowed to do this at least 10 times before this day. And normally the correctional officers would leave the bathroom door open. But today, for some reason, Dante got extra lucky. Not only was he not handcuffed or shackled, but he turned into Spider-Man that day. I mean, when Dante got in the bathroom of this old courthouse that was built in the 19th century, Dante slammed the door shut and locked it. The seals actually gave him a minute or two like to do what he had to do, but within minutes, when he didn't come out, the seals called his name like idiots. They were probably like, Dante, Dante. <laughs> then when they tried to open the door, realizing it was locked, one of the CEOs ran outside and saw that the bathroom window was open and he realized that they had just got got. Dante had jumped seven feet to the concrete ground below, landed on the sidewalk and took off running up like the street towards St. Paul and Fayette. And since he wore like regular street clothes, he blended right in with the regular citizens downtown. Man, when them seals had to like to go back to that courtroom and and tell that judge that Dante had escaped on his out his bathroom window in all my years, I ain't never heard nothing like this, especially during a trial in the middle of a high-profile murder trial at that. When like Talis's wife heard about Dante escaping, she was in the courtroom that day and she just lost it, just broke down crying. Everybody in the courtroom panicked and people in like in charge, they tried to throw the blame on each other. What me or what me? So the judge said that the bathroom window hadn't even been open in 30 years. Really? Wow. He was like, that window ain't never been open in the 30 years since I've been here. I've never seen it open, he said. He must have had the strength to open it. He later told the water was all this. With, I, can, I can imagine with a straight face. And because the judge had let Dante use his own bathroom so many times before, he figured everything would be all right. Dante's public defenders, still trying to defend his client at all costs, tried to request a mistrial, basically because Dante wouldn't be there to witness himself getting screwed. But the judge refused to do any of that and said, as far as I'm concerned, he's waived his right to be present. <laughs> when the jury came back from their break, they had no idea that Dante had escaped. And the judge explained to them saying, We've had an, an unusual turn of events. We can't explain, but you may notice that the defendant is not present at this time. After Dante escaped from the courthouse, 40 minutes after Dante jumped out the bathroom window, he literally called the chief of the Maryland Penitentiary and told him that he's thinking about it and he's, he, he's thinking about it and he might turn himself in. But until then, Dante was officially on the run and his escape set off the biggest manhunt 
in Baltimore City's history. And trust me, well, that was since Palestine. Again, that's another story. But and trust me, the there had to be some accountability for all of this. All of it. So many people got fired or reprimanded for their actions with dealing with Dante, starting with the two cops at the store that gave Dante the fake license back, who could have locked him up that day when they, you know, looked suspicious. They were disciplined. Then came the clerk at Motor Vehicles who had been working at the DMV for six years because of her feelings, sympathy, and sorry for him and fraudulently issuing him a whole new set of driver's license in Vitalis' name. She got fired because of Dante's actions. The whole Motor Vehicle Administration revamped the process on obtaining and receiving driver's license in the state of Maryland. Now a Maryland state license or ID on it, there is a digitized version of your photo along with the regular version. But there is also a digitized version of your electronic signature on your license because of Dante's shenanigans. Two correctional officers were later fired for taking Dante to the judge's bathroom and charged with breach of security, which led to Dante's escape because the commissioner said they had full knowledge of Dante Carter's history. They had full knowledge of the high risk of escape. There is no excuse. One of the COs had been a correctional officer since 1979, and the other one had been a CO since 1990. Of course, ain't nothing happened with the judge who let him use his bathroom in the first place because the commissioner said, judges don't usually let inmates use their bathroom, but judges aren't responsible for their own safety either. Wow. But they can give you the okay for inmates to use their bathroom and conveniently run away from accountability if something was wrong with that. Oh. Okay, wow, I get it. Anyway, after Dante's escape and any and everybody who even looked like him was stopped at red lights or pulled over by cops and with both the state police and the FBI and the United States Marshals all helping local, local police in looking for Dante, who they all considered one of the most dangerous murderers in the state of Maryland at that time, the very next day, Dante was caught by U.S. Marshals and both the city and state police as they surrounded and evacuated an apartment building at the Goodnow Hill Apartments in Northeast Baltimore. The police had received a tip when Dante gave a number to a friend who in turn gave that number to the police. The police got a search warrant, evacuated that apartment building, and went in found unarmed, alone, and hiding under a bed in a third-floor apartment, Dante was arrested at 6 p.m., ending his 28 hours of freedom. When the cops brought, when everybody, when the officials brought him out, Dante was surprised to see black people clapping, happy that he was off the streets. On June 8, 1993, Dante was sentenced to life in prison plus an additional 190 years to make sure he never, ever gets out of prison. Even at his sentencing hearing, Dante had to be the star of the show, and when he was allowed to make a statement, he gave a 35-minute rant saying stuff like, why is it special when a man is killed and he happens to be a white man? What's the media circus for? Because a black man had the audacity to come home from prison and do something to a white man? I had rather die than be pulled out of that apartment and see black people clapping like the police did something good when I've never heard of, heard of black men. They know I've never killed anybody. I'm not going to say I'm sorry because I didn't do it. 
The judge basically said that Dante can never be fully rehabilitated, but urged him to at least decades from now <laughs> to serve as some form of wise OG in the prison system. Ouch. One that can counsel the younger inmates who got locked up. Now, I want to... Y'all already know why this crime was notorious in Maryland. For people that's, you know, lived in Baltimore like I did when this was going on. And I wonder if Dante does exactly that to this day. He's been locked up so long. I wrote him before uh, when I was doing the research on uh, the book, uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. And I'm surprised that he wrote back and sent pictures and all that. He does seem intelligent. You know, he does seem a little smart and all of that. He actually threw some information about myself in the letter. Like he had done some research on me, which was kind of like, you know, weird. But um, he uh, he's never coming out. He's never coming out of prison. They're never going to let him out. Uh, <laughs> he was one of the most notorious uh, criminals only because of the shenanigans he pulled. Um, the the method that he used of, of trying to, you know, continue the crimes with the whole DMV stuff, changing that. And also because he escaped out the courthouse. This is why he was notorious in, in Maryland. And with that, we're going to move right on to this week's Unsolved Homicide. But before I do, let me just mention that it is not just a podcast that focuses on or gives attention to the most heinous high-profile homicides occurring in Maryland. On this podcast, a portion will always be dedicated to the victims where nobody knows what happened, where nobody knows or talk about or says anything what happened, you hear about them one minute, next thing you hear nothing about them. And you'd be surprised at the number of people who killed and friends or family, they may have a feeling that they know who killed their loved one, but because they can't prove it or they don't have actual evidence, they don't know how to go about getting answers. They don't know how to go about getting justice for the victim. And they're just left with tons of unanswered questions, unbelievable grief. And it's like, you know, the victim died all over again. It's just hard to move on with your life like that when you have so many unanswered questions. You expect it to just move on, pick up where you left off, and just hope that the detectives will do their jobs and then hope that the justice system will deliver some sort of justice that can come close to the feeling that you experience when you lose a loved one to homicide. Getting justice in the state of Maryland, that don't happen a lot and it's not easy and to be blunt. Detectives are kept busy with so many homicide cases that they that already have clues, that already have witnesses, who ain't scared to come forward, who already have, you know, evidence. But what about the homicide cases that don't have clues? These cases are eventually labeled as cold cases and put on a back burner, so to speak. And to be honest, not a lot really happens until evidence falls out of the sky or somebody opens up their mouth and starts talking. On this podcast, Every single uh, unsolved homicide needs special attention, no matter who the victim did, you know, or what they didn't do in their personal life, you know, or what they did in their uh, life, their lifetime. You know, it's like, who are we to judge who gets killed, who lives and who dies? I mean, that way of thinking like blows me every single time. I mean, it's like, so-and-so don't deserve justice because they was out here tricking or they was out here getting high or blah 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 really like who named yourself god last time i checked none of y'all named god nobody is perfect we all make mistakes so with that being said the focus for season six unsolved homicides has been all women all women who have lost their life to homicides 
you know, will be the focus for season six. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the murder of 50-year-old Becky Elizabeth Chris on December the 23rd, 2001, around 11 a.m. A cleaning lady went into the hotel room and went to a hotel room at the Holiday Inn in the 3200 block of Laurel Fort Meade Road in Laurel, Maryland, and found the body of 50-year-old Becky Elizabeth Chris, also known as Kelly. Becky had suffered some sort of trauma to her upper body. After the paramedics were called, Becky was treated at the scene and rushed to an area hospital, but she was pronounced dead shortly after. Guess what? That is literally all the detectives had. No clues, no no evidence, and they need your help. So y'all know what time it is. If you have any information at all you, that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide, please call Anne Arundel County Detectives at 410-222-3487. You can also reach them at 410-276-8888. You can also reach Anne Arundel County Cold Case Detectives at 410-222-3456. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of why I do what I do, while I got into true crime, and why I started writing all true crime books and the podcast and all of that. A lot of people think I just woke up one day out of the blue and was like, boom, I'm going to start a true crime podcast. But nope, that is not even true. There is a full-blown message to all of this madness, and this is just not some type of overnight gimmick for me. Also, be sure to pay a visit to the new website, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com, and Maryland is spelled MDS, Most Notorious Murders.com, where you can access episodes from past seasons one through six. You can also find links to all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, A True Baltimore Story. Be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.